Hello, everyone, and welcome to another fabulous episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, your favorite Murder, She Wrote podcast, and ours too. I'm your co-host, TJ West. And I'm Bridget Keith. And we're very happy to bring you another great analysis of an episode entitled Murder in the Afternoon, in which we get to meet some more Jessica extended family. We get to see a behind-the-scenes, what appears to be a soap opera, and Jessica Walter is in it. So there's a lot to enjoy about this particular episode, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, what did you like? Or, sorry, what did you think, Bridget? Uh, this is not one of my favorite episodes for a couple of reasons that we'll get into in a second. But I think that it's a perfectly fine season two. Um, you know, this is episode three of season two. I think it it's serviceable mm-hmm. for that sake, right? Like we have the sense that the show knows now what it does, how it constructs a mystery, and how Jessica solves it. Um, and I think they're being very clever in this one by having um, the, the the setting is the soap opera. And we open with actually a potential murder on the soap opera that we're supposed to think is a murder in real life. And somebody yells, cut, and we realize we're watching a TV show. So I think they do a little bit of cleverness, especially with the denouement, mm-hmm. about how the TV show and real life are sort of meshed together. Um yeah, so that's that. But I have a couple of gripes that I, it's hard for me to get over. Okay, well let's uh, let's get them. What, what what are they? Let's start out with these. Already, no- we're gonna we're gonna start with the negatives. Yeah, and okay. then we can move into the positive. All right. Well, um, first of all, let's talk about our main character. Well, our main guest character, Nita, who's played by Alice Krieger, who people probably know best as the Borg Queen from Star Trek: The Next Generation. Um, did you like Nita? Well. I didn't dislike her, but I did find her accent to be strange. And I was watching with a, a non-fan of the show, and they were like, what is with her accent? Which, as it turns out, in our research for the show, we've, or Bridget's research, she's South African, so perhaps that explains it. it. It was five seconds of Googling. Yeah, I mean, she, but it's, it's I think it's not even just her accent. It's her delivery, mm. too. It, it's a very theatrical, very affected mode of delivery and then i just think that the character is um supposed to be this like innocent young actor who's just landed her big break Mm -hmm. on the soap opera um which is called our secret lives which is a great title and they actually never say it's a soap opera right in the episode even though it clearly is which is a very weird choice um but Nita knows that her character might get killed off, and she's terrified because, of course, she's paying for her grandmother's assisted living, it looks like. Um, yeah. And so we're just – there's something about her that is so, like, uh, this poor little sweetheart who could do no wrong. She's just not a round enough character for me to like. It seems like she's only presented as, like, pure, sweet, innocent, nice, cute, yeah. Yeah, and I also didn't, I mean, I'm sorry, I just didn't find her chemistry with Jessica to be that convincing. Like, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's not like Grady, obviously, who's a pretty high bar when it comes to, <laughs> you know, the dynamism between him and JB. I was just like, eh, I don't, I mean, she, as you say, I think that it's partially just because she's such a pale imitation of a character. Like, she's just sort of a stand-in. She's a fill-in. Like, there's not a lot of, like, weight to her characterization. And as a result, like, I'm just like, why does... Jessica Carroll. Why much. Do I, I mean, care? I know she's her niece, but like, yeah. why should we as audiences just take their word for it? Like, it just doesn't feel to me as if there's much existing relationship between her and Jessica. Well, let's actually talk about that for a second because that was a little bit confusing to me. So, in the first scene that we see her um, and Jessica, Jessica's talking to this woman who looks roughly about Jessica's age, but is somehow in much rougher shape. 
And then Nita mm-hmm. comes up and says, hi, Grandma. So the woman is her grandmother. And then she says, hi, yes. Aunt Jess. So Jessica is her aunt. So this leaves us questions about the family tree, it does, right? It, I, I have many questions about the family <laughs> tree, and I'm very glad that you brought this up because I'm obsessed with genealogy. And so I was just, I, you know, trying not to get distracted from the, the, the murder plot, but I was just like, I really want to sit down and map this out on a plan, <laughs> like on a family tree to see how this works out because I'm not sure that it yeah, adds up. I mean, I think the only way it makes sense is that Nita is the daughter of one of Frank's brothers or sisters and this grandmother was her non-frank side of the family grandma so the grandma and jessica would have no bloodline connections at all barely not even really marital connections right like that's the only and then jessica just being a lovely person would happen to know the grandma and be friends with her that's the only way it makes sense right yes which i i thought of it i was like okay i i will buy that but it's just like I was like, is this Frank's mother? Right. Like, there's no way that could be true. I was like, there's no way that Jessica's just kind of having this casual conversation with her mother-in-law. And like, it's cl- it's clearly on Jessica's mother. And right. if it's Frank's mom, like you would expect that we would have known about that a long time ago, right? Yeah, and that she'd be older. Yeah, the whole thing is weird. The whole thing is very weird. Okay, oh, so she's very charming as a character. So there's that at least. Who the grandma? Yeah. Oh, she's annoying. It's just an old fluffy way. Oh, Nita's on a soap opera. I love old ladies, so it's <laughs> it's a very low bar for me in terms the of kind whether of old, the kind of old lady that I like is JB Fletcher. Well, sure. I, I'm I'm an equal opportunity old lady lover, so it doesn't. They don't have to be necessarily the kind that rides bikes or you know goes jogging. Um, I'm I'm more than happy to just you know settle down with an old lady drinking some sweet tea <laughs> on a porch. But okay. Maybe that's just my Appalachian upbringing. <laughs> um, okay, so that's gripe number one. Gripe number two, can we jump ahead to the murder and the solution? If I'm going to express yes. gripe number two. Gripe number two is I just feel like Julian – what they do to Julian is actually kind of awful. So just to mm-hmm. rewind for people who haven't seen the episode recently, Julian is this um, actor who's been on the TV show for 30 years. So he he's like – what is he supposed to be teach? Because it's the 80s. Like today he would be in his 80s, but it's the 1980s. So maybe he's only like 60. I don't probably, know. I was going to say probably 60. Yeah. But he's doddering, right? Like he's verging on senile. He's very old, but he's so sweet and lovable. And everyone, we're told everyone on the show loves him and that they can't make the show without him. Um, and Jessica figures out that Julian might have been the person who murdered the tyrannical producer and because Julian is so doddering, he works from teleprompters, uh, and they actually write a confession onto the teleprompter for him to read on camera. And that's like the big gotcha moment, although actually it's not the gotcha moment because he wasn't the killer anyway in one of those dumb murder she wrote twists. But it was just – to me, it, it wasn't um, – it's really awful because yeah, first of I- all, he's not – it's not actually a confession. He's reading a teleprompter, right? So like – any lawyer could easily argue like he's an actor reading lines. That was not a confession. But number two, it was like he didn't – he's so senile, he didn't even realize that he was confessing. And I, I – I too felt very perplexed. I'm glad that you brought that up too because, again, I have a great deal of sympathy for older people. I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm so close to my grandparents. Maybe that's why. But I felt deeply – 
uncomfortable and borderline yeah. morally outraged at the way that this is both staged in terms of like the, the diegetic way it's put forth, but also just like this is messed up. Like it's really. And then he just seems yeah. so earnest afterwards. He's like, did I do a good job? Do you need me to reshoot it again? I'm like, yeah. And no one blinks an eye, bats an eye. Doesn't even understand what they've just done. He's like, oh, did I perform okay? I was just like, poor, I just felt very know. cheap and very gross. Like, it was just icky. Like, that's the way I, I think that's the best way I can describe it. I felt very icky afterward. I mean, and I was just like, and it, it's distressing to me that, like, the show doesn't really even seem to want us to pay any mind to it. it just It's just a a step on the process to figuring out the real murder. And I was just like, yeah. okay, this seems deeply questionable. It seems like such a bizarre thing for Jessica to have done yeah. as an older woman, right? She's the one who orchestrated this. And you think there'd be more appreciation or respect for Julian's station in life. Yeah. And for, you know, his longevity on the show. I think what is interesting about it, though, is that it's yet another example of 1980s technology Mm -hmm. being deeply important to the investigation and the solution, right? The idea that, like, we can record him live on camera reading a teleprompter. Um, Teleprompters aren't new in the 1980s, but you you get me, Mm -hmm. right? Like, this idea of, like, how video technology somehow is involved in these investigations seems to be a recurring theme in the show. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I did not. I really appreciate that, um, and I I have a gripe too, but it's less like about that. But it's I, I'm, my we spoke about this a bit in the preview or in the pregame. I was really perplexed that we didn't get more time with Jessica Walter. Like I would have liked to have seen more time with her, as you framed her, the tyrannical producer, because she's a really interesting character. Because at this point, for those who haven't seen it, like she is basically reshaping this entire show. Like, she's killing off characters left and right. She's introducing a whole new cast, chasing ratings, you know, to get people to tune into the show as she's revamping it. She's invented a new series, Bible, which is quasi-central to the plot. And so I just, I find that whole idea of this, you know, creative genius who is a real horrible person. Um, I just fascinating one. And of course, Walter plays it to the hill because that's who she is. And she plays these roles so exquisitely well. But I was just disappointed we didn't get to see more of her. And, you know, that's... Because it's just yeah, exactly. Walter. Okay, I have a question. Because a couple of weeks ago, um, we watched one that had um, Larry Linville. And you said, has he ever not played a twat? And my question for you now is, has Jessica Walter ever not played, like, a horrible rich woman? I don't think so. I mean, that's truly her, like... Even in Archer, where she's only a voice, that's still the kind of character she plays. Because she plays Archer's mother, who's, like... A terrible old woman. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's a it's a masterclass in how a person can really cultivate a very particular type that they play so well that you can't help but look away. Because I mean, the brilliance of Walter is that she makes these characters deeply reprehensible, but we love watching them, and that's a real skill mm-hmm. that I mm-hmm. really appreciate when actors are able to create villains who are still so charismatic. Because it's very easy to play bad And I think we we don't get much of that in this because she's only in a couple of scenes. But I'm thinking about her character in Arrested Development. Mm-hmm. We get um, also, you know, she there's these moments of vulnerability that make the person feel real, you know? Yeah. And I think maybe we do see that a little bit here. So we see her working late at night, ultimately the night she's murdered. Uh, and her husband says, I'm going to the Friars Club. And she says... I'm going to call there. So you better make sure you're actually there because she knows he's cheating on her. And Mm -hmm. I I think it's a brief moment of like we kind of get to see behind the armor 
mm-hmm. that she's maybe so awful and so cold to people because actually, like, people are awful to her back. Uh, right. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think she says something to the effect of, uh, don't make me cut off your allowance. And it just, it's a, it's <laughs> yeah. a, one of those moments where, Makes like, her sound only- terrible. Yeah, sure. But I mean, it's, it's a brilliant moment, too, because he's such a cat and such an awful person, too. Like, he's just one of those people who's immediately dislikable just because of the way he kind of embodies that kind of character. Mm-hmm. And he um, ultimately is the murderer. So we have Julian's whole confession on the teleprompter. And then Jessica's like, well, sorry, but actually you didn't do it. So it's like, so why did you make this poor old man go through this horrible thing? And also like, hey, murder, she wrote. You've done this multiple times now where the one person thinks they've killed someone and they actually didn't. And it turns out someone else did it. And it's like, okay, you guys, we're kind of over that. But um, mm-hmm. the, the Jessica remembers that the husband shot a robber a couple of years ago. And so she's like, I bet you we could figure out that that bullet is the same bullet that killed your wife. And also uh, there was this whole mix up about whether it was the prop gun that was used or a different gun. Anyway, so Jessica, using all of this evidence from the ballistics, you know, figures out that the husband did it. But the show runs out of time before we actually understand the motive. The motive seems really confusing to me. It's like she says something like that Mm -hmm. um, Joyce, Jessica Walter's character, would was close to finding out that he was having an affair with the other one of the other actors on the soap opera and that maybe eventually he'd get his allowance cut off. So he'd preemptively kill her i don't know to me it just seemed like a really flimsy motive for him killing her it did and it it goes by so quickly that i kind of had to rewind to be like oh, that's that's it that's the revelation <laughs> right. I, was, I was quite perplexed that you know this guy literally shoots his wife in cold blood just out of the mistaken assumption that she might figure out that he's having an affair like it didn't i don't make know any just, sense. yeah i was i too was a little underwhelmed by the But it works well from the cozy perspective because Julian as the murderer is what the big buildup was to, right? And then Julian's confession on the teleprompter is like the big dramatic emotional moment. But Julian can't be the killer because he's this lovely old man that everyone likes, you know? And that would just be such a violation of like the cozy sensibility that – what's the husband's name even? I don't even remember. Larry. Is that really it? It's such a dumb name. Larry Holleran, played by William Atherton. <laughs> Thank you. Um, that he, It's such a bland name. I don't even remember it. He's also a bland character, but so he, I mean, that makes sense. He is a bland character, but we know that he's kind of he's kind of framed from the beginning as being mm-hmm. awful. And so, like, him ultimately being a killer, even if the motive doesn't make sense, it makes sense in the logic of a cozy mystery because we don't want someone nice – to have become the killer, right? We want the bad bad guys are bad guys, and the rest of us live in our nice little world, right? right? So, in that sense, it works. But I mean, I also have to ask you, and I wanted as soon as I watched the like the true finale, I had I was like, we have to talk about this on the show, and of course, I'm talking about the fact that as the police investigator says to Jessica, like, there's no chance we have kept that bullet from like three years ago. So, how are we going to like yeah. actually prove this? So. I mean, there's a number of things that are worth noting here. So first of all is the fact that Larry doesn't really admit to anything. He just kind of shuffles off the stage. Like, there's no, like, uh, yes, yeah. I did it, which we normally see so frequently in Murder Shirt, which is itself. Yeah, the regretful confession we don't yeah, get. Yeah, it's just kind of like he makes to run off. 
he doesn't even try to shoot Jessica. It's like, come on now. Like, I, if this is a murder, she wrote, I expect some kind of like climax <laughs> where, you know, the, the murderer decides in a rampant, you know, fury to try to do away with that, that pesky Jessica. But also more to the point, like, she's like, well, you may have to just lie to him to basically get him to admit the truth. And that's how we end. And I was just like, yeah, I hate it. I was it. like, uh, I suppose that is standard procedure. Um, within some police departments, but I'm just like, mm, Jessica, like, that seems, I don't know. That t- it, was, it, it was one thing when Jessica is saying it to him because she's supposing. She says, I guess when the police do these tests, they'll find out that it's the same bullet, right? It's all like conjecture on her part. And then he panics and tries to run away, which is, you know, proof that he did it. And then the police guy is like, we don't have that bullet anymore. And she's like, well, don't tell him that. Get him to confess before he figures that out. So it's like, ha ha ha, we tricked you. The police tricked you. It's really, it makes me feel gross. Yeah, it was another of those moments where I was just like, I mean, like I said, having watched enough procedurals, I see that happen all the time, like within you know, television drama that, you know, you don't actually have the evidence, but you act like you do to kind of, which is itself acceptable, but can lead to complications. But to see Jessica, of all people, propose it as a solution and to have it played so lightly just felt gross in a way that's similar to her manipulating Julian into admitting feels Mm -hmm. gross. And I suppose maybe it's just because we're not used to seeing that. I mean, it's all, it's borderline cynical and Jessica is many things, but she's not cynical. And so it feels in this case She's not like cynical. Yeah. both lazy writing and a betra- maybe not, I don't want to put it too harshly, but a betrayal of her character just because this is not the kind of Jessica that we are so used to spending time with. Yeah, I have two sort of thoughts in response to that. I mean, one is she is the same Jessica in that Nita has been accused of the murder. And we know that when Jessica, when someone Jessica cares about is falsely mm. accused of murder, she will do everything to get them out, right? I mean, that's like kind of the plot of every episode. Um, But the second thought is, you know, I made note when I was watching the credits that the names for the writers and directors struck me. Um, So it could be that the writer was on staff in the first season but didn't get any primary writing credits, but it's definitely a new writer Mm. in terms of credits. And so I wonder if that's part of it too. Maybe we had some shuffling in the writer's room. And so it feels a little bit different to us now. Yeah. No, I, that's that's good, a good observation. Because it does feel, I mean, like some of the key ingredients of a typical Murder, She Wrote episode are here, but they just don't seem to line up quite as neatly. Mm-hmm. And I also, I mean, I noticed that there weren't that many like big names as far as guest stars go. Like it's, well, uh, not compared to some of the ones that preceded it or that, that followed it. Like there's no, I'm sorry, there's no Roddy McDowell here as well. There will be next week. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. Wow. What a treat that was. Um, okay. Well, first of all, okay. So the Borg Queen is obviously, you know, not the Borg Queen yet. Exactly. I get that. We also have Trisha O'Neill, okay. who is Rachel Garrett on Star Trek The Next Generation, another Star Trek actor. She plays Bibi, the one that um, Joyce's husband is having an affair with. And she's a lo- another lovable sort of wealthy, horrible woman um, who at one point in this episode like get, is really drunk and like tells Jessica like the lurid details of her affair with the guy, which is just like a great scene for her. Um, we also have Mackenzie Phillips, who's fresh off of doing One Day at a Time. Okay. Okay, so we do have people. Yeah, and half have- this, but you said the next generation. Like, isn't that years in the future? That's that's in the future. So you can't pre- you can't retroactively. So what we don't what we don't have is you know the sort of classical Hollywood connections. That- There's no Milton Berle here. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> 
she's in this, it'd be like, you know, what, 200, how many episodes someone will write in and say, how does she not know the exact number of episodes? 212 episodes, you know, and like times 45 minutes. How many minutes of the show is that? And he's in like 20 seconds. And you'll always go to that. I will always go to that. (laughs) That was the peak right there. That's when the show topped out. I mean, it is Milton Burrow. Come on now. (laughs) Anyway, um. But one thing, I mean, aside from the murder and our gripes, I did actually enjoy the way the show is another kind of historical documentation. Because there's a moment when one of the, like, the director slash producer, Gordon, who is played by Terry Kaiser, who I've seen in a lot of, like, NBC shows, or, sorry, TV shows from this era. They're talking about, like, part of the reason that uh, Walter's character is so popular with the network is because she's drawing in ratings. And, you know, the networks are all about chasing ratings. So there's this moment, like... You know, where the series is sort of self-reflexive in a way, because it's talking about tele- – it's television talking about television. Yes. And as I – and I always love those moments when mediums talk about mediums, like when Hollywood talks about Hollywood or, you know, TV networks talk about TV networks. Like, it's just a fascinating moment when we – it pulls a bit away the curtain a little bit. Yeah. And 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 just that um, the power that she has and that none of the actors, because it is a soap opera, it's a new episode every single day. None of the actors know at what point they could be written out or killed or put in a coma. Um, so there's the guy who one of the actors has a big a chance for a big break in Hollywood on like a regular drama series. Mm-hmm. She won't kill his character off. Somebody else desperately doesn't want to be killed off and she's probably going to kill them off. And so there's just lots of like unknowns here about acting in a TV series that are um, obviously heightened for the narrative effect of this episode, but really true to the experience of being a TV actor, right? You have no guarantees. And one of them at one point is like, I have a contract. And she's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, so what, right? Because like, contracts usually have clauses that like, you can get killed off and they can drop you. And you'd also mentioned that she's revamping the series Bible and trying to draw in new viewers and stuff. And I think we should think about this as, um, I mean, even though it's a daily soap opera, that we should think about this as taking place in the mid 80s at like, sort of the expansion of cable TV. And like, this is something that television producers are facing at this time is that there's a lot more competition for TV series. And people are getting desperate to cling on to audiences because Viewers have so many choices. And we'll see that narrative come back a couple of times in Murder, She Wrote. There's like one in particular I'm thinking of that comes much later. That's like a where they make fun of Friends, essentially, Mm -hmm. Um, and how like Friends is such a different show than Murder, She Wrote. Right. But but I think it's it's also really reflexive of that time in TV history. And that was really exciting for me. This is exactly why I brought it up, because I knew that Bridget would give us the texture, as, as she always does, because obviously this is her jam. So I wanted to bring that up because I wanted you to talk about that. <laughs> Seedless raspberry. What? Jam. The jam. Oh, yes. Well, strawberry for me. <laughs> but anyway. Apricot, actually. Apricot jam is I, very good. Other- Apricot is really good. And you know, you add a little water to it and you glaze pastry mm. with it and it changes everything. Yes. I learned that yeah. from British Bake Off. And that's why you guys watch the yep. listen to the Cabot Cove Gazette, right? It's for those. Hot I mean, come on now. I mean, if, if you are the kind, if you are out there listening to Cabot Cove Gazette, I'm, relat- I'm relatively certain you are also bakers. I think that is just like, I think there's probably a nice Venn diagram <laughs> of Cabot Cove Gazette listeners. Maybe not bakers, but definitely people who watch the British Bake Off. If you have any baking suggestions, please email the Cabot Cove or leave a comment on our Twitter page if you have baking suggestions. Because I have a feeling that you are out there. 
Um, can we talk about the whole gun thing for a yes, second before do. we run out of time? So the plot of the soap, the ongoing plot of the soap is that there's this character called the Avenger that nobody knows who it actually is, even though Nita is the one portraying the character. And it, it, the Avenger is going around murdering people, right? And so the Avenger uses a 45, we're told. Um, and they assume that's the gun that was used to kill Joyce, but Jessica and the police find out that actually it was a 38. So there's this suddenly it's like, oh, there must be another gun because we thought someone had stolen the gun from set. So this, you know, so soon after Helena Hutchins was murdered on the set of Rust and Alec Baldwin was under investigation for being the one handling the gun and there was all this talk about um, the arms masters on sets and how weapons are handled on set. You know, Uh this really resonated with me. And it's not that it's um, bad TV writing because this is actually – how sets work. Sometimes they do have real actual guns. It just, it's resonated with me in in that, like, this is a terrible practice. Like, why are they using a gun that is actually a working gun that could have been used as a murder weapon? Like, it's TV. Would anyone even care or notice if it was, like, plastic and, like, the end was, you know, taped off right. and it didn't fire I mean, anything. You're right. And that I, that was the thing – the first thing that sprang to mind was the, the incident on the Rust um, set. And I was like, wow, this is – as with so many other things about this episode, deeply questionable <laughs> – deeply questionable practices these people are engaging in. It just seemed um, very dangerous. I mean, we do have, like, the props master who comes and takes the gun away at one point, and we see him lock. He says, okay, we're not going to use this anymore today. we got to lock this up. And so I think that's our our cue as viewers. And I'm guessing in the 1980s, viewers probably wouldn't have known as much about weapons on sets as mm. we do today because of social media and, like, people letting us in backstage and stuff. But right. it was sort of, like, informing us of how they handle that stuff. But it's just such a dangerous practice. And then it makes yeah. me think metatextually, too. Like, well, what weapons are we using on Murder, She Wrote? Right? Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. Another – yeah. I I don't have much to add there, but I think that's a really good point to bring up. It was really hard not to think about the Rust incident, I think, just because it's so recent. Yeah. And it got so much attention. And because someone lost their life. Right. Unnecessarily. And it does, you know, as you said, like, bring to mind even, like, previous – Film or TV series, and like it, it forces us to like think about this in a way we would not perhaps otherwise, just because of the visibility of that particular incident. Yeah. What else do you want to say about this app, Teach? I think that's about all I've got. I think we haven't talked about Jessica's relationship with the police in this episode, which is really antagonistic. Oh, it's true. Yes, we could talk about that. It's really antagonistic, but it's bizarre because she's just really pushy. Again, like that's natural to her character because she wants Nita to be freed. But she's really, really pushy. And the guy just like keeps giving in. At one point, he literally even says, do I have any choice? When she says, she asks if she can do something. And it's like, you're the police. Yeah, right. She's a civilian. Of course you have a choice as to whether or not to allow her to do whatever it is she wants to do. Like, this is so weird. Right. Well, it's like a friend of mine was, I was watching this with, um, that I mentioned earlier, was like, why are people talking to her? Like, why are the cops, like, 
count, you know, sort of acquiescing to her demands. And I'm like, well, that's a really good question, considering she has literally no authority <laughs> other than that, you know, she's a very famous author of mystery writers. But I mean, I guess that is a testimony to her, like, powers of uh, as a personality. Like, she's just a force of nature that it's, you know, we all know those kinds of people in real life. I mean, I know a certain co-host of mine no, who is kind of come a, on. a force of nature that you know can sometimes be a little overwhelming if you aren't, aren't. <sighs> he means overbearing I mean, no i don't i mean over i i meant what i said i'm very oh, precise well, with good, my language I'm not overbearing no overwhelming and i don't mean that as a pejorative it's a good thing to have a to be of a forceful personality that you can get things done that's right my my, my dissertation advisor was like that too that's right so shout out to steve cohen who is yes of other things a scholar of classical hollywood he is and he is also a force of nature i'm not sure he's a jb fletcher but you know <laughs> he is one of those people who's like let's get this done and it's very hard to, and they just have a there's a magnetism to JB that is hard to resist for both us as viewers and for the characters. I mean, at one point she tells the guy, you know, he's like, he's like, well, Nita's obviously my suspect. And she says, anyone capable of imagining that my niece can commit murder is being grossly overpaid for taking up valuable space in this office. I mean. Oh, I love when she has those moments. Me too. I love when they write these zingers for her. Ugh. Oh, JB. Can you imagine? Like, she's just so great. But I have a question about your friend, though, because um, I understand that it's kind of like the logic of a show like this that you have to take for granted. Like, of course, people are talking to her when they don't need to be. And of course, the police are letting her do investigation. But is have they never seen Murder, She Wrote? Have they never, like, sure, they- watched a murder mystery? Because, like, that's kind of how it all works, right? They have, but they're a very practical kind of uh, person. Okay. So... Like I think that sometimes they are a little more uh, hard-headed when it comes to these things. Yeah. And like, you know, a more cynical approach, perhaps. If you get hung up on that, I think there's no hope for watching the show because like, like that that's the whole point, right? Is that she's right. doing things she's not supposed to be doing. <laughs> there wouldn't be a Outside show the- otherwise. <laughs> right. J.B. Fletcher, the, the maverick. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Well, that probably wraps it up for this episode. I think so. So, um, for as always, you know, from us here at the Cabot Cove Gazette, we thank you all for listening to us. Um, I'm your co-host, TJ West. I'm Bridget Keys, And we will see you next week. Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Common License. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter. 